So whether it's just a, a cold beer at the end of a game of golf or a really extraordinary bourbon at the end of a, an amazing evening, it's about that moment in time and the memories that, that those spirits make for you. This is episode 301 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, talking about the last drop distillers, here's your weekly bourbon news update. The acquisition of Luxco by MGP was completed back on April 1st. It's a deal valued at $475 million, but MGP said the move was part of the firm's long-term strategy focused on shifting to products of higher value and would significantly expand the business and will improve MGP's gross margin and cash flow. U.S. representatives from Kentucky have sent a bipartisan letter to U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai asking to help suspend the tariffs on American whiskey. Congressman John Yarmuth and Andy Barr, both co-chairs of the Congressional Bourbon Caucus, led the effort for the letter. It's signed by 48 other colleagues in the House as well and it asked for Thai to work with the European Union and the United Kingdom to immediately stop the tariffs on the export from the U.S. before it starts increasing to 50% on June 1st. Last year, more than 2,000 craft distillers in 37 states exported American whiskey, and according to the letter sent to Thai, the distillery sales have decreased by 41%, while 31% of their employees have been furloughed since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The American Distilling Institute is now accepting submissions for the distilling research proposals. There are currently three research investigations funded by the research grant back in 2020 that are currently going underway. One is looking at ethyl carbamate in bourbon. One project is investigating the effect of proofing rates in whiskey and a research study into the heritage varieties of corn. The request for proposals runs from April 5th to May 14th. The deal between Sazerac and Brown Foreman for the Early Times brand has now been closed, and Sazerac will begin aging and bottling Early Times at the 1792 Distillery in Bartstown, Kentucky this summer. Early Times Bottled and Bond has really become a fan favorite. Now, though Early Times will have a new home, Barton 1792 will continue to deliver the same Early Times Bottled and Bond product that consumers have grown to love using the original recipe and mash bill. Now moving on to bourbon release news. Bluegrass Distillers, a craft distillery out of Lexington, has announced the release of their first ever bottled and bond weeded bourbon. This small batch release will use Bluegrass's weeded mash bill of 75% corn, 21% wheat, and 4% malted barley. This small batch weeded bourbon release is a blend of four barrels, aged four and a half years. Being a small batch and limited release, there are only 920 bottles available with a price of $50. Buffalo Trace Distillery has announced the second annual release of their kosher whiskey is now set for May. Kosher law mandates that whiskey should not be owned or consumed by Jews during Passover. So in 2012, the Chicago Rabbinical Council oversaw the sale of New American Oak kosher barrels to a non-Jewish executive at Buffalo Trace, which is President Mark Brown, and they filled and put away those barrels for aging. Buffalo Trace bottling lines will be completely flushed before bottling, to ensure the whiskey is not exposed to non-kosher spirits. The whiskey release will be limited and available at a retail price of $40 per bottle. In today's episode, we get a glimpse behind the operations of The Last Drop with their managing director, Rebecca Jago. 
they have quite an interesting history of sourcing extremely old and extremely rare whiskey. And the release of the 1980 Buffalo Trace is really what caught our attention. We even got a chance to try it on a past whiskey quickie and it blew us away. We get to hear about how their partnership with Sazerac works and how their business is still considered sustainable. Enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Brandon Robinson, who asked the questions, what happens to used rye barrels? We know a lot about used bourbon barrels and how they're used for scotch and other whiskeys, but what about rye? Here's the thing, there's just not a lot of rye barrels that come up on the used barrel market. In fact, when I reached out to a couple barrel brokers, they were like, um, yeah, we never get rye barrels. But I do know I have seen rye barrels in, uh, in the beer circuit uh, quite a bit, and I saw uh, some rye barrels being used in wine. And the thing about rye is that it's kind of it's a little bit like uh, getting uh, scotch from from Isla. You've got really unique notes coming into those barrels that are from the grains. So in Isla, you know they're so heavily peated that the peat can come through in that second use of the barrel after it's used in Laphroaig or wherever. And it's the same with rye. Rye really to me is just has a lot more. Uh, essence than, say, bourbon does um, just from the distillate perspective. Rye is so powerful when it's distilled, whereas corn is a lot more muted uh, and doesn't have that same kind of flavoring that, you know, rye does. And that, listen, that's the reason why they put rye in as a flavoring grain for most, you know, bourbon recipes. But at any rate, this is still, you know, it's still such an itty-bitty market in comparison to bourbon. You know, there's just not enough uh, rye barrels uh, coming onto the market from a, from a second-use perspective that it's just, you're not seeing it, you know, in any kind of large quantities. I will say also, this is very important to remember, that rye does not necessarily have to go into a new charred oak barrel if it's made outside of the United States. So rye is not a protective, uh, is not a protective spirit, whereas bourbon is. And bourbon has to go into a new charred oak barrel, but if they're making rye in Finland or Canada or Mexico or wherever, and they can, they can make rye whiskey anywhere in the world, um, they can use used barrels. So what rye whiskey is and what rye whiskey will kind of grow into remain to be seen. Um, I think the next five years will be very interesting. And that's a great question, Brandon. So thank you for asking it. And I do think The used barrel market is one great way to track the success of a whiskey. And that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you have an idea for Above the Char, like Brandon did, an excellent question, he hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Just shoot me a note, and uh, if I like your question, I'll read it on the air and answer it the best I can. But that's going to do it for me this week, folks. Be safe out there. Cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. 
you can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to knowsyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. And welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking about a brand that you may or may not have heard of. Honestly, it took us a little while even for us to even find out more about it. You know, I had heard about Last Drop Distillers probably a few years ago because they have these crazy old vintage releases. And not until recently when we had the opportunity to sample the Buffalo Trace 1980 is when I said, you know what, this is a this is a pretty unique and interesting story. I think we should probably find who we can talk about it with on the podcast. And I know, Ryan, you could probably express the sentiment too, that it was easily one of the top, maybe the top one or two bourbons that I had in 2020. Yeah, or of a lifetime. I mean, it's up there with, uh, I mean, that joke, we literally did get the last one. It felt like a last drop of it, but, uh, man, that the few drops that we did get of it, holy cow, is one of the more flavorful bourbon expressions I've ever, ever had. So I was, it was really fortunate. And then I had no idea who last drop distillers was until we had tried that sample. So, uh, of course, as soon as we tried it, what do I want to know? Who's behind it? What's going on? How can we be a part of it? So. Yeah, and thankfully, we've got somebody here on the podcast today that's going to be answering a lot of those questions and giving us some more background into the whiskey and how they come across it and everything about Last Drop Distillers. So today on the show, we have Rebecca Jago. She is the Managing Director of Last Drop Distillers. So Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Kenny. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining all the way from UK. Yes. Yep. 
Got to love these remote podcast platforms for something. Even though we can't get in, get together in person, maybe the next time, if you ever happen to be visiting uh, at Buffalo Trace in Frankfurt, we'll, we'll be able to meet in person, record another one there. I would love to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. But we always like to start the show off with some random icebreaker just to kind of let the guests know a little bit more about you. And so, Rebecca, your question is, what is one thing on your bucket list? Oh, um, what is one thing on my bucket list? You've really foxed me here. <laughs> uh, that's what we try to do. We try to, we try to bring in something cold so you can't well, think about it. Well, I suppose at the moment, while we're all stuck at home, the thing I most miss is travel. Um, not just travel for work, but travel for almost for the pure pleasure of travel. But I think somewhere I would really love, love to go is Hawaii. And um, I've never been anywhere like Hawaii, and I've seen various bits of footage. I'm not a surfer at all, but there's something about the sort of extreme nature of the sea and the and the land that I would really love to go and see. You know, it's funny. So you're based in the UK, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it, we always have, and I, I'll say this because my company is based out in California, and every once in a while, I get talking to coworkers and they're like, oh, we're going to go vacation Hawaii and so on and so forth. And I'm like, oh, man, that sounds so cool. And they're like, it's not that far. It's just right over here. I was like, no, no, no. Being in Kentucky, for me to get Hawaii takes just as long for me to fly to England. Like there's no, yeah. there's yeah, it's the same exact amount of time. Yeah. And yeah. it feels like a very long way away for us. It would be, it would be quite an undertaking to, to get to Hawaii. But that's part of the appeal, I think. You got to stay there for at least two weeks to make up for it. Definitely. I think a, a year off after all of this maybe is the answer. <laughs> Heck yeah. Maybe uh, that's he, my bucket list. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and that's been one of the things that Ryan's even encouraged me knowing that I've been working from home for a long, long time. He's like, why don't you just go like live in Florida for like six months? Like, why oh, don't you stay in Kentucky? It's so cloudy and cold here in the winter. Why would you deal with this if you can work from <laughs> anywhere? It would have been the smart idea. What about you, Ryan? Do you have a bucket list? As with every question you ask me, I have multiple bucket list items, but the, you get one, we get one. The first one that popped in my mind is I want to do, uh, I want to go fly fishing in Montana and just like marinate in the water. I don't even care if I catch anything. I just want to like, just sit there and cast all day, <laughs> like with nothing. Well, nobody's stopping you from doing that today. Well, I know it's just, <laughs> it's a pain to get to. There's no good, like good flights. Southwest doesn't fly there. So I'm like, I gotta, yeah, I gotta <laughs> step up and do that. And do you do you swim as well? You mostly just wade. You know, you put mm. waders on and uh, you just marinate in the river. You know, and mm. try to catch some trout. So you know that it over here certainly lockdown has brought on. There's been a huge upsurge in what's called wild swimming. It's not really wild swimming. It just means not swimming in a pool. But yeah. um, there's been a huge uptake in swimming in the sea, swimming in lakes, swimming in rivers, wherever you can. You can find an opportunity to jump in. I've done it a couple of times. I've Is swam it? in lakes, but mostly with a life jacket because I'm too out of shape to like <laughs> not uh, not like drown or anything. So that's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, I would say for me, one one thing is I have to steal it off my dad because it was his, and I'm like, man, that sounds really cool. Is to go on an African safari. Yeah, that actually. Be cool. Yeah, you know, like actually be there with some guides and and, and don't be wrong, like I'm not going to go out and start petting lines or anything. I'll be safe <laughs> in the in the whatever kind of Humvee, whatever they have and just taking pictures out the side. I'm, that sounds cool to me. 
Yeah. I, I have been fortunate enough to do that several years ago when my kids were quite young. We we went to South Africa and it was it was unforgettable. It's the most magical experience and I, I think really, really worth doing in a in a sort of environmentally mindful way, which is as you say, it's the photography, not the not the petting and certainly not the um shooting but yeah uh, hopefully yeah. not no i'm good <laughs> kenny doesn't know how to use a gun so <laughs> animals are safe all right so we'll kind of dive in this a little bit so rebecca let's kind of give us the elevator pitch of what last drop distillers is okay so um if we start if we start with the elevator pitch i we would describe ourselves as curators of the world's most remarkable spirits and we thought a very long time and very long and hard about that that sentence because we we don't claim that the spirits we bottle are the best in the world that's a very very subjective statement and we don't we can't claim that they're the rarest because rare how do you judge rare so so what we came up with is is the idea and I, it was lovely to hear you both talk about the bourbon and how how special you both found it, is that we want whatever we put into a bottle to be just delicious. You know, I mean, that's a, that is a subjective word, but I, I don't claim to be an expert in any particular spirit. I, I want p- other people to feel as I do when I taste one of our bottles. It's this just true delight in, in what's inside. And that's whether it's a, so, so, so we cross all age spirit categories. So it started with Scotch whiskey, but it's Scotch, cognac, rum, bourbon, could be tequila, could be Armagnac, could be goodness knows what, as long as it's it has potential to age. And that means that no one person could possibly be the 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 ultimate expert or arbiter in all of those categories. So so it's it's really much more about tasting something and just finding it delightful, special, unique, and and a sort of taste of taste of a moment, a moment from from long ago. So that's not very much of an elevator pitch, but <laughs> but and also I I am not responsible for the original idea for the company. I am the very, very fortunate daughter of one of two men who founded the business in 2008. And if you've got time for me to tell you a little bit about that, that's always a quite a nice sort of intro to the to the please brand. Do. Yeah, please ahead. do. It's it's always good. It's always good to have the context, especially for anybody that doesn't know the history or, or, yeah. or more about it. So um, my dad was a man called Tom Jago, and he worked in the drinks industry all, all his, pretty much all his life. And he was working for a company in the 1970s called IDV, which is part of what eventually became Diageo. And his responsibility was for new product development. And through a series of other companies owned by the parent company, one of which was a dairy in Ireland, and one of which was an Irish whiskey company. He was the man behind the development of Bailey's Irish Cream. He's not a scientist. He didn't make it, but he, he, they, he with a group, developed the idea. And that is obviously an amazing claim to fame, to, be, to say, oh, my dad was part of the team who invented up Bailey's Irish Cream. I could just go and live off that because everybody knows it. Most people love it. Yeah. James Espy his was became his colleague in 1977 moved over from South Africa and James was responsible for making Baileys the the worldwide success it is today and the two of them then pretty much worked together as as this really interesting team because James is very much a sales and marketing big businessman and my dad was much more of a sort of 
innovator and ideas man. And they worked together for IDV and then for United Distillers and ended their careers at Shivers Brothers when it was still owned by Seagram. And they basically, you know, developed and marketed new products and product extensions for the next 40 years. And then they left Shivers Brothers when my dad was the grand old age of 82 and James was a mere spring chicken of 65. And they decided to try and do something for themselves. So if you can imagine having gone from from being responsible for Shivers 18-year-old and before that for Johnny Walker Blue Label, they then decided that what they were going to do was go off to Scotland and see if they could find a couple of barrels of something old and exceptional and delicious and bottle it under a new name and a new label with no backing, no big business support, just two old men with a nice idea. And that is genuinely how the business started. They registered the name. They went and found three barrels of a fantastic old blended Scotch whiskey. And they called the company The Last Drop, filled about 1,300 bottles with wonderful whiskey. And then James mostly set off around the world selling it. And they called in a lot of favours from people to help them with the bottling and the production and the shipping. But, the, but then James donned his kilt and, and went to China and went to the States and went wherever the demand was and stood up and told the stories of his and my dad's careers, tasted this wonderful whiskey and people bought it. And I think if I, if I were to speculate, I would say that neither of them expected to start a company. I think they had an idea that they wanted to bring to fruition. And then probably it would have been time to hang up their hats and say, look, we did it. We've, we've done the big and we've done the small and now it's time to, to retire. But somebody said to them, what are you going to do next? So then, <laughs> then instead of an idea, you got, say, what's the next bit of this story? And my dad, who had worked for about four years for Hennessy, went off to Cognac and came across a very small parcel, about 400 bottles of a Cognac from 1950. And so if you could imagine that, that set them on many different paths all in one place. And that was A, an idea becomes a company. B, we're not a Scotch whiskey bottler because our second release is a cognac. So now we're, we're an independent spirits company that's looking for exceptional spirits. And we don't have any preconceptions about what they are or not many. Now, now almost we've got to make it up as we go along, which is exactly what they did. And I was fortunate enough to, to, to be where well, I was working, I was running a small design agency to, to start helping them out with the packaging in the early days. And then James's daughter, Beanie, was working in Hong Kong and she moved back to the UK and we met. And in about 2014, the two of us joined the company as, as the next generation, if you like. And I think that that was a big change for us in a huge number of ways, but mainly because what we did was sort of take the ideas of, that they'd started with and make it a bit more organized, a bit more structured, have a release plan, start looking for future releases. Uh, but all with with the same eye on the principles that they started with. And, and that principle was, is it delicious? Is it old? Is it unique? Do people want to try it? And that's, that's still, that's still 21 releases later, that's still the abiding principle. And along the way, 2016, we sold the company to Sazerac, which is how we have been able to release 
something from Buffalo Trace. But we remain open to whiskies, cognacs, any other spirit from, from anywhere. We're not tied to, to one category or to one type of spirit, as long as it's, as long as it's delicious. So I'm, as I say, delighted that you liked what you tasted, and I hope there'll be many more tastes along the way. Yeah, I mean, color me jealous. Totally. And you were talking about, you know, how do you define rare? Because, I mean, I have some rare bottles, but they're not very good, you know. And, uh, you know, something from us might be considered rare, but nobody wants it, you know. So, but uh, I guess talk about some of the emotions. You know, when I taste something good, like I think about, these emotions kind of flood over my body, you know, and my, and the, the whole experience talk about, do y'all have kind of like an emotional standard or something when you taste something? Yeah. I, I think that's a, a really beautiful way of putting it actually, because it really, it really resonates with me. I think half of, half of not just what we're doing, but what, what the whole principle really behind alcohol and the sharing of spirits is it's about that sense of sharing and the delight you get, not just from what's in your glass, but from the moment that you're having with somebody else or, or a group of friends where you are actually enjoying something together. And I think that very much goes back to that emotional connection that you have with what's in your glass. So whether it's just a, a cold beer at the end of a game of golf or a really extraordinary bourbon at the end of a, an amazing evening, it's about that moment in time and the memories that, that those spirits make for you. So both in the discovery, and I, I mean, I've got, I've been incredibly fortunate in some of the things I've tasted. The stories that come with discovery are very much part of, of our, if you like, our portfolio of, of messaging is we, we want to tell you about where we were when we found it, what we were doing and how it was how it was uncovered. There's there's one story that really stands out for me. Uh, it's it's it it sort of sums up everything about us and what we do. I went to Cognac to meet the team at the Sazerac operation, which is quite newly re-established in France. So the origins of Sazerac are actually in France in Cognac. The the original founder of Sazerac Cognac back in the 18th century was a man from Cognac who shipped his cognacs to New Orleans. They've now bought a domain and are starting to make cognac again. I went to meet the guy who was running that operation and he said, what are you looking for? And I said, well, you know, really anything. I don't have any preconceptions. I'm just interested to see what you're doing. And if there are any exciting parcels, then I'd love to taste them. The very next day, he rang and said, I think I've got something for you. And I could just sort of sense there was a little moment of excitement. So so he picked me up and we drove to a, a cognac domain of at vineyards and a distillery near the centre of the cognac region. And there we met a guy who is the grandson, well, probably great-great-grandson. It's a family distillery that's been there since the 18th or 17th century. And he had been doing some renovation work in one of the barns on the estate. And it's quite a big distillery. And behind a wall in this barn, he uncovered two barrels. One was a barrel of cognac that his granddad had distilled in 1925 and then hid behind a wall when the Germans were approaching the southwest of France between the wars, so in probably the late 1930s. And it had been left there and forgotten. So this is completely, it's very unusual in a number of ways. One, because it happened. Two, because it was never 
discovered. And that means that this barrel of cognac sat there completely untouched for 93 years, which is just amazing that it wasn't topped up, it wasn't put into demijohns, nothing happened to it. I got to taste it. And it was just the most astonishing cognac I've ever tasted. I haven't tasted lots. I'm not an expert, but I knew I was tasting something really, really magical. So I stood in this this little tasting room and there's a man who, who it was almost like he was showing me his baby. You know, he had his arms folded and he had this smile on his face that said, I know you are going to love this. And I tasted it. And to what I said at the top, which is about not being an expert, but knowing when you're tasting something special, that's exactly what I had. I tasted it and I thought, I've never tasted anything like this before and I probably never will again. And it's just utterly beautiful. And I, I heard the story of the spirit, the fact that his grandfather had distilled it, that it had been hidden, that it was discovered completely by accident, and that we were being given the opportunity to put this in a bottle and bring it to 182 very lucky owners. And that's what we've done. For me, it was even more special because it was distilled in the year my dad was born, and it was bottled in the year he died. So that you know, to, to talk about a place in time and a moment in time, that to me sort of sums up everything we're trying to do. Not all the stories are quite as romantic as that, but there's always a sense of place and a sense of story behind what, what you're doing. And I think this comes back to, to sharing, to, to experience. And as you were saying, Ryan, that emotion, the emotion can come purely from what's on your lips or from the person you're with or from the story behind it, but ideally from all of those things. But I just to, to sort of underline that, I think it still has to be really delicious. If you're going to sell things for thousands of dollars, which we do, and I'm not going to dissemble that, then they've, they've got to be once-in-a-lifetime moments to share. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely story, and I think you're – you're really putting a new spin on the word orphan barrel that we in <laughs> we in the bourbon world have been accustomed to that, you know, came from Diageo that nobody really knows if they're quote unquote orphaned. But, you know, finding something like this, because th that's a different story, because that's done on a much larger scale, which what you're doing is really kind of finding like just the smallest segment and, and being able to provide a truly unique tasting experience, mm. something that you, you'll never be able to experience ever again. And that's the way we felt when we tried that 1980 Buffalo Trace. Yes. Well, and, and the 1980, that's lovely and a completely different story. But equally, there's a lot of romance because although it's it's not a 40-year-old bourbon, it was distilled in 1980. And of course, the bourbon industry was in a very, very different situation then. And yeah, I don't no one know cared. now... No one cared, and bourbon was not this unbelievably hot topic that it is now. But it was also distilled before Sazerac owned the Buffalo Trace Distillery. So, so it was distilled at what was then the George T. Stagg Distillery by Gary Gayhart, who was the master distiller there. But the lovely thing is because, you know, Kentucky and bourbon particularly, is, is, it really is an industry where things pass from father to son and generation to generation. But Harlan Wheatley, who is obviously now the master distiller, was Gary's apprentice and learnt his trade from the man who distilled this. And then it was Harlan who actually uncovered this, this parcel where after Sazerac had bought, bought the distillery and decided that it, 
it would go into stainless steel and then waited another 20 years before we were able to bottle it. And so it's a different story, but it's also got that sense of, you know, passing on from master to, to, to apprentice, if you like, and also just this little little window onto a time gone by. And it may only be 20 years old, but it's 20 years old from another time, if you like. And that's, that's really lovely, isn't it? And for you guys who probably know far more about bourbon than I ever will, it's just, it's these lovely little moments of history that are so fascinating. You kind of give new meaning. We call uh, vintage spirits, or we call them dusties here, dusty bourbon, because they got, you know, dust on the bottle. But yeah, Kenny and I, that's some of our favorite moments we've spent together have been sharing, you know, vintage or dusty bottles that, because you're tasting history, you know, and it's yeah. not always good. Uh, you know, we've had some, what was the the 27 or no, 40, 47 year old uh, bourbon or how yeah, old that be- was. I, I know exactly what you're talking about uh, from from Buddy. Yes, yeah. from Buddy Buddy Thompson. You know that whiskey was terrible, but it was old. But sitting there and sharing it with Buddy, uh, he was one of the most unique, caring individuals, and had so much to do with how whiskey got to where or bourbon got to where it is today. And you just don't forget those uh, moments and experiences, and it it's really unique. And you'll never forget it either. And that's. That's really part of the lexicon of of how how you build up your memories and your knowledge. It's nothing. It can't all be great all the time because otherwise none of us would know how to to measure great against greater or or less good. And and it's the same with the spirits we bottle. I mean, we we sort of estimate we probably don't bottle about ninety plus percent of what we taste. So we have to set the bar very high, and that doesn't matter whether it's whiskey or scotch or cognac or, or or rum so we released a rum at the very end of 2020 which is our first rum and it's it's absolutely spectacularly good and and I say that as a non I mean I I don't know anything about what well, I know a little I know a lot more about rum now than I did 6 months ago but <laughs> but it should also be just objectively pleasurable to drink I suppose that's the thing and that, but that there are moments when you taste something that's not pleasurable, but as you say, there were lots and lots of reasons for for it to be a memory worth keeping. I kind of want to dive a little bit into the business model because coming from you know an economy standpoint and thinking about how do you grow a business like this, I look at this as being uh, very very difficult. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. 
Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. I kind of want to dive a little bit into the business model because coming from, you know, an economy standpoint and thinking about how do you grow a business like this, I look at this as being uh, very, very difficult, especially if you're rejecting 90% of, of what you're tasting through. I know Ryan and I, we actually have a, a similar project we do with our own brand that's kind of this, but on a, uh, we'll say a much smaller scale. But when you're going through to really scale a company, you're thinking like, oh, we need lots of releases. We need to get this on shelves. We need to get this in the hands of, yeah, we need consistency. We need to get this in the hands of people across the world uh, to really blow this thing up. And you're like, no, 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 we're going to take the exact opposite approach with this. And and so kind of talk a little bit about the business model and like how how you can sustain it too. Well, I, I there's a million, well, not a million, there's many, many facets of the answer to that. And I think one of them as we are now, is is having an incredibly supportive and financially very robust owner. Because although growth is obviously always a part of any business and its ambitions and, and our um, aspirations, if we are concentrating solely on quality and rarity, then you also have to be able to, to turn around and say, actually, we're not going to release anything this year or this month or this quarter because we haven't found anything good enough. And in a sense, that has to be the message all the time. We're not saying everybody has to love every single thing we put in a bottle. But if the quality isn't there, it's better not to do it than to try and than to compromise. So, so growth will ultimately come from um, laying stocks down. So that, and this, of course, if you if you look at, at the the world of bourbon, this is this is what has happened. There are now, I, I, mean, I think it has been for a while now. There are more barrels of bourbon than there are people in Kentucky, and and I think that that allows for the anticipation. The difficulty we have is, as you know, spirits in wood. You can't guarantee what's going to happen to them. So we we invest a lot of money in future stocks on the understanding that they're not all going to make it into the bottle, but that we hope by choosing carefully when they're younger, that we hope that the percentage of what makes it into the bottle will will grow. So slow, careful growth, I think, continuing to to, to widen our network of contacts, because a lot, I mean, a huge amount of what we're doing is, is about who you know and what they've got and being open to suggestion. So do you sellers do they seek you out or do you seek them out or i'm sure it's a combination of both but typically what happens um it it really depends in different markets so so in the states obviously we are we are um owned and imported by sazerac and, and we are incredibly fortunate to have the sazerac sales team 
behind us and they have been they've changed they've completely changed our fortunes in the US because they're such a passionate group and they all seem to love what we're doing and as long as as long as we're prepared to support them and, and do the storytelling and the tasting and 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 just help them then they are doing a better job than we could have hoped in China um we someone found us a guy who previously worked for Bacardi and set up a company on his own he came across us I don't know quite where and got in touch with James back in the day and said I I'd like to be your distributor so so we ended up in you know one of the largest countries in the world with a tiny company but he really understood that for the Chinese market it's all about hand selling and relationships and so there's never been a bottle in a store in the whole of China but he's done a fantastic job at at, at networking his way to really quite sizable sales for us so it very much depends on market by market it's different i would say absolutely uh, it would be tough and and i think you know for us Ryan and i we we do barrel picks all the time and you know you'll you'll go to a distillery and we'll say on a good day, and most of the time it's something like four roses. They'll have, you know, at the most 10 barrels for you to select from, which mm. is greater than probably any other distillery that we go to and do that. I find it very fascinating in the fact that, you know, we think we pick a good barrel and we're like, yes, this is a great barrel. This is, this is what we're looking for. But you are like, nope, we need, like, how do you determine if something is like, super unique or super rare like what is do you have a criteria checklist or is there just something that <laughs> I, i'm just i'm just so I'm, I'm enamored with this thought to figure out like what is like what is something that you say no this is something that we're not even going to consider versus something that like would you even consider something that's like a a 12 year old kentucky bourbon like would that even be something considering or is that just not rare enough like what is your what's that checkbox list for you? Mm, there's there, mm, there's quite a lot to this and i think <laughs> The, the principle has always been that if, like when I was in cognac and I tasted this, this amazing 1925 cognac, I still needed to take that sample back to the team in the UK and for all of us to sit in a, a, an office with fluorescent light and taste it when we're not being seduced by the, the sunshine and the romance of the story. And that, that has played both ways. With that one, it was everybody was absolutely behind it but i previously brought back samples from another visit where i i was completely besotted by the story and the sunshine and then in the cold light of day it just really wasn't very nice so the founding principles were is it delicious and do we all think it's delicious and and given that the team is very small that is um quite a simple criterion what we're doing now more is we starting to create this panel of experts from various fields and so that includes Colin Scott who's the ex-master blender for Shivers Brothers he's just retired last year and he's joining us as our master blender so that's a wonderful nose to have for Scotch Drew Mayville will be will be our arbiter of all things bourbon and Canadian we've got the wonderful Richard Seal from Foursquare Rum in Barbados is, is joining us and we're adding to that. And then Denis Lahouratat, who is the cellar master down at, in Cognac at, for the Sazerac operation down there. So we're, we're building up this team of experts, if you like. So that will give us a layer of what might you call it? You might call it authenticity or in some ways that I hope that they will authenticate 
the emotional decisions that I might make and say, yes, Rebecca, that's <laughs> that's good enough. Or, we, we know you had a good time there, but uh, it's, it's, it's not cutting the mustard here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so we are putting in place some measures to sort of try and maintain that, that benchmark that sits pretty high. And I, I think Age is quite important, but age depends on the category. So a, an aged bourbon is not going to be the same as a cognac. You know, you can get cognacs to 70 plus year old, no problem at all. You're not going to get a 70 year old bourbon, not until they've really refined the sort of refrigeration and, and controlled aging techniques. But and Scotch whiskey doesn't reach the ages that cognac does. I mean, I don't know enough about the science, but maybe it's the grape spirit just ages in a different way from, from grain spirits. So, so age is, is part of the equation, depending on where the, the spirit is from. Rum is obviously very similar to bourbon in terms of its, the way it matures because of the humidity and the heat out in, in the Caribbean. So I, th- I think it's a, it's a balancing act. Yeah. You know, one thing is, you know, I look at the the 1980 Buffalo Trace and I think of, yes, 20 years in the wood and then 20 years in the stainless tank. And I'm like, wow, that's a, that's an incredibly weird business model to think that we'll just let it age an initial mm. 20 years in the tank. Now, and I'm imagining that like this was all done way before last drop came into it. And then it kind of like rolled in unto, under your umbrella and everything like that. Kind of talk about what that process was of when Sazerac said like, Hey, we've got this thing sitting in this tank for, I don't know how long you all want to try it. Like what was that, that sort of scenario like? Well, it was a bit like that actually. Um, (laughs) 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 But you guys know Mark Brown and he, he's this, he, for a guy who's the CEO of an unbelievably successful company, he has a very interesting, quite maverick, take on a lot of things and I think his view of what we were doing long before we were acquired by by the company was that he he liked that sort of sense of adventure if you like that that we were not after massive volume that we've never looked at a diffusion range you know if you think about all the businesses whether it's a Macallan or whoever who have this super premium product but it's mainly supported by the 12-year-olds that, that are the ballast that keeps the, the ultra-premium expressions afloat. And, and of course, we're not doing that, and we're not looking at a mainstream product that will support us with volume. So, so I think he was ready when they, when they acquired us. He was ready to, to allocate those little gems to us as an alternative route for them to find an audience. And I think that's part of the charm is that even within the world of bourbon where prices are crazy and demand is crazier still, that we're trying to put some sort of halo on, on what we're doing. For sure. And, and I think you know you had mentioned their uh, pricing, and that's one thing I think we should also mention to listeners is that you know, you're not going to go find a last drop bottle and think that you're only spending $150. No. no it's a, it very, very much the difference. I, I think 1980 Buffalo Trace was 5000 4,600. Yeah, well, it's a few hundred dollars between Indeed. <laughs> so I guess one of the things is, is explain the rationale behind the pricing and everything like that, uh, just so our, our listeners have some sort of understanding of, of how you get to you know, those types of numbers. So um, the pricing is 
what I would like to say is I think the pricing is fair for what we're doing. The what we we would say is we don't bottle anything that you could find the equivalent of elsewhere for much less. They we're trying to showcase rarity and exceptional quality in an irreplaceable way so that whatever we put in a bottle you're not going to come across it somewhere else you're not going to be able to taste that again and again and again and that it is about that experience it's it's not saying i'm going to buy 10 of those and i'm going to put them in. we we are really passionate about people drinking what we put in bottle i absolutely get that four thousand four and a half thousand dollars not everybody is going to spend that on a bottle of bourbon. I absolutely understand that. But I hope that the people who do will drink it and will share it and will love doing so. And that every drop they drink will give them, you know, many, many dollars worth of pleasure, memories and experience. So so I think what I would say is that I think the price the pricing is fair and I think I hope that it in some way obviates the need for for that secondary market inflation and i'm also very mindful that obviously you know pappy which sits head and shoulders above all the other ultra priced that sazerac don't price pappy at the prices it reaches but i i like to think that what we're doing is is acknowledging that there is a price point for the ultra rare and that what we're putting in a bottle it's and it's not an annual release you're not going to come back in a year's time and say what bourbon have you got coming out this year we 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 won't ever have regular releases from any category so so it's the uniqueness just whenever mark brown sends you a message and says hey we've got this other science project that we forgot about <laughs> 30 years ago yeah well i hope i hope and i hope some of the some of the experiments they're doing now i hope will find their way into a bottle in, in years to come but it's that sort of it's the alchemy i suppose do you think bourbon was overdue something like this? Because scotch and obviously other spirits had been, you know, priced at such a premium price like that, whereas bourbon was more of a, you know, everyday common folk kind of even, you know, you say like a Van Winkle, which is supposedly the best whiskey in the world at retails $350. Mm. Um, do you think uh, bourbon is deserving, you know, of a price point like this, you know, compared to the other spirits you're working with? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would not differentiate in terms of rarity and quality. I, I think taste comes into it. There is a huge appetite for, for bourbon. I mean, it is, it is obviously very much driven by North America, but that's not to say it's not absolutely exploding elsewhere. And I can see absolutely no reason why not. There's, there's nothing about bourbon that makes it inferior as a spirit to scotch or cognac or or anything else, the, the, you know, the artistry and the skill is in is in the distiller and the blender and and the way it's matured, and and that doesn't that doesn't change from category to category. So I'm 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 absolutely a hundred percent behind the. I mean, I'm completely behind the bourbon explosion. I think it's been a, a long time coming. Yeah, and this was your second bourbon release, it if was. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was, but the first one was so small, forty four bottles that the old <laughs> leaky barrel about it very <laughs> we didn't talk about it very much because there wasn't very much to talk about yeah it's it's hard to uh, make a splash with 44 bottles that's for sure but you know 
just to re-echo our sentiments from earlier, you know, we had that sample of, of 1980 and it really was, it was a, it was probably one of the highlights of the year. Uh, Ryan said highlights of, you know, our lifetime being able to try something like that. And it really does play into the story that you tell, where the history comes from and the mission that you all are trying to accomplish too, uh, mm-hmm. of being able to find things that are super unique, that, that speak to a, a, a very enthusiastic segment yeah. of the category. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that, that is the huge pleasure in, in, in what I do and the people I speak to is, is, is sharing that enthusiasm. You know, that, that's at the heart of it. And I think, as I said, almost at the top of the call was we want people to love what we do and we want people to love what they're drinking. And that not just what they drink of the last drop, but, but every, every drink should be a pleasure. Otherwise, you shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> Checkbox. I'll yes, take it. Absolutely. I, I like that. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to go ahead and kind of start rounding this off a little bit. You know, Rebecca, okay. we always we always like to be able to finish these and talk about like, oh, you know, what's coming up next for you all? But it's like, ah, who knows? We might not ever have a release uh, for this year. So who knows? I got a great idea, no. though. We'll pitch you. It'll be an remarkable story, one that people will never forget. You come to Kentucky, hang out with Kenny and I. And we'll do barrel picks and it'll be in less drop. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. I'd love to. <laughs> but it would that. be a memorable story. We'll make it memorable for sure. It would. It certainly would. Yeah. I tell you what, being able to kind of look and see what other kind of things are, are cooking up over there at Sazerac and be able to try those. I, I would imagine that's a, a very awesome play box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really is. Sandbox. A, a sandbox yeah. to be able to go in for sure. I, I have had some amazing trips to, to, to Buffalo Trace and I've been, you know, I've been very lucky to, to, to walk around Warehouse P, which I'm sure you've heard about. That's their refrigerated warehouse. And I don't know, they have these amazing parkers, which have got the last drop logo on that you have to put on before you <laughs> go in because it's so cold in there. But just actually, I think the whole operation there is, is, inspirational you know every single team member is so passionate about what they do and i think that it pervades everything from from the the wood to the spirit to the way they communicate and i that makes me i sound like a real evangelist now don't i but it does make me very proud to be part of part of that company well cool well we hopefully look forward to be able to meet you in person here one of these days but rebecca i want to say thank you again for coming on the show if people want to find out more about you, more about The Last Drop. How do they research or follow you all? Okay, so they can find us at our website, which is lastdropdistillers.com. We are on Instagram at at lastdropdistillers, or you can email me, Rebecca, at lastdropdistillers.com, and I will be delighted to reply to everybody. Well, uh, don't, don't, you're going to, you're going to hate your wish on that one. People are going to start flooding <laughs> your inbox. i give you my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Well, Rebecca, thank you again for coming on the show today. Make sure you follow Last Drop. We also had our whiskey quickie about Last Drop that came out in 2020. So make sure you go check that out and make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials and you can get this podcast, of course, wherever you get all your podcasts, including YouTube and various other locations. With that, I want to say thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you all next week.